Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. With me in the studio is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld. He's a trusty and true friend. So uh, you can't say hi to him, but he's going to say hi to you right now. Hello. So uh, I have no comments today. And uh, the, the, the thing is, I want to say is I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining. You know, so... So I know Karen is out there listening, and uh, she doesn't like me to hear me complain about not getting any comments. But I know it's been a busy summer. It's probably a busy summer for everybody. Probably a lot of people are on vacation, so that's okay. Now, on our last program, I finished discussing the highlights from Chapter 5, which was titled The Fourth Hussars. And it is clear that young Winston Churchill loved being a hussar, even if he did fall off horses often. And so we know the Hussars were the, they were the soldiers that had the beautiful uh, blue uniforms. They got to ride on horses and uh, uh, Mr. Churchill had to learn not to fall off a horse because he kept hurting parts of his body. Now, in addition, I also began discussing highlights from Chapter 6 titled Cuba. Now, for today's program, I want to continue discussing highlights from Chapter 6, which again is titled Cuba. But um, the the thing is, I thought, we already discussed some of this, but I thought it might be good if we just go back and review just a little bit. So so uh, I think it might help you continue to keep caught up. So remember, from last time, Winston Churchill wrote, and uh, this is on page 76, and I, I think it's it's really, really interesting. We should just keep this in mind as we read through this book. Remember, this this is a book that he wrote long after it was all completed in his life, but he still has the mind of a young person, and he could write that into the story. And uh, this is on page 76. He said, It seemed to my youthful mind uh, that it must be a thrilling and an immense experience to hear the whistle of bullets all around and to play at hazard from moment to moment with death and wounds. Moreover, now that I had assumed professional obligations in the matter, I thought it might be as well to have a private rehearsal, a secluded trip, trial trip, in order to make sure that the ordeal was one not unsuited to my temperament. Accordingly, it was to Cuba that I turned my eyes. And so, so here, young Winston, he's hunting for a war, and he finds one in Cuba. And now it's, it's interesting. We're talking about, about the 18, well, uh, I guess 1890s. And there was a lot of, of uh, trouble going on between Spain, who owned Cuba, and the, 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 uh, the locals. They were rebelling. They did not want to be ruled by, by Spain. And so, so this is the war he found. Now, we also have to remember that uh, uh, he, he decided to go to Cuba, but he also convinced another brother subaltern, remember, Reginald Barnes, to go with him. So he wasn't going to go alone. He was going to have someone go with him. And so uh, uh, I think it, it's, it's very, very 
uh, important to just just to remember that. And then uh, I also want to just go over to page seventy-seven real quick. And uh, I, again, he's he's thinking of Cuba. He knows what's going on over there. I guess it was around eighteen ninety-five. I'm looking at the top of page seventy-seven. It gives us a date. And and he he goes on to say. He talks about it, and he hasn't. He's not there yet, but he's talking about. It. He said, "Here was a scene of of vital action. Here was a place where anything might happen. Here was a place where something could certainly happen." And then he adds to the end, "Here I might leave my bones." <laughs> and so, so in some ways, he's getting a little poetic there. And uh, there, there's been some English poems about leaving their bones in England. And so he said, "Well, maybe I'll leave my bones in Cuba." And he says, these musings were dispersed by advance of breakfast and lost in a hurry of disembarkation. <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, he, he's thinking of all these, these really interesting things. And one thing, uh, let's say if we, if we go on here, I, I just, one thing that I learned in this that I did not know, and uh, I want to pass it on to you. He goes on to write, he, he, he arrives at, at Cuba and he says, Cuba is a lovely island. Well have the Spaniards named it the Pearl of the Antilles, the temperate yet ardent climate, the abundant rainfall, the luxurious vegetation, the unrivaled fertility of the soil, the beautiful scenery, all combine to make me accuse that absent-minded morning when our ancestors let so delectable a possession slip through their fingers. So I did not know this, but at one point in time, Cuba was a part of the British Empire. And it's it's really I didn't know that and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And and so I had to get online and I had to look it up and I have this little bite from the internet. And I asked the question, was Cuba part of the British of the English Empire? And and here's what I got back. It says in 1762 to 63, Havana was briefly occupied by Britain before being returned to Spain in exchange for Florida. A series of rebellions between 1868 and 1898 led by General Maximo Gomez failed to end Spanish rule and claimed the lives of 49,000 Cuban guerrillas and 126,000 Spanish soldiers. So that is the backdrop to this book. And so so here Winston Churchill is, is involved in Cuba and if you know your American history, we know that Teddy Roosevelt also got involved in Cuba, and he was with the Rough Riders. So, so this has gone back between England and America, and of course, uh, you know, America. I think uh, we wanted Florida, and so somehow we got Florida from Spain, and we let them have Cuba, and that's how that worked out. So, uh, you know, there's just a lot of history here. But notice, I, th I think this is really a, a great statement on his part. However, our modern democracy has inherited enough to keep or to cast away. And so, so we're, we're going to come up on a few more things later. What he, when he talks about, uh, you know, the, the island and talks about, talks about the rebellion. And, uh, I'm not going to get into that right away today, but we'll get into that, uh, you know, so, probably next time. So, so anyway, the, the thing is, if you look at that line there, however our modern democracy has inherited enough to keep or to cast away, I, I think that's a, that's a great statement by Mr. Churchill. And, and I think he saw this need to explain that the empire, the British empire, had inherited enough. 
And and if you really understand the British Empire the way we should, the, you know, the, the, the British Empire at one time covered one quarter of the Earth's land surface. And it governed one-fifth of the Earth's population. And so he said, that was enough. He, would, he thought, wow, they gave this up. But then, then he realized that, you know, the, and I think some people have such a, a wrong view of the British Empire. But, but I think Winston Churchill saw it differently. He saw how much the empire helped people. And uh, uh, here, in some ways, they're going, here's two, two uh, soldiers from the, from the British Empire going to Cuba to help Spain get rid of the rebels. And uh, he's going to reveal something a little bit. I, I want to just save that for for another time. But uh, uh, it, it's really it's really kind of interesting that that uh, the British Empire at one time did own it. They gave it up to the United States, and uh, they took we took Florida. They took the island, and you might be able to understand a little bit that the people of the island didn't want to be ruled by someone else. <laughs> so, so that was all back in the time of the empire building. All right, so so uh, he gets to the island. The you know that they they go over there, and he 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 talks about the city and the harbor of Havana. And so so I think this is interesting. He says the city and the harbor of Havana, thirty five years ago, presented a spectacle which no doubt surpassed by its present progress. Was in every respect magnificent. We took up our quarters in a fairly good hotel. We ate a great quantity of oranges smoked a number of cigars and presented our credentials to authority. <laughs> so so in some ways you can still see that that here at that point in time the the harbor in Havana must have been absolutely magnificent. And you, can you imagine two young soldiers off by themselves in a different country and they got a night. <laughs> their their night out on the town is in in Havana and uh, I think it's funny they 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 ate this quantity of oranges, but then they smoked a number of cigars. So the health of the oranges got destroyed by the smoke of the cigars. <laughs> so so anyway, but but they presented their credentials to the authorities, and as he goes on to say, everything worked perfectly. Our letters had no sooner been read than we were treated as an unofficial but nonetheless important mission sent at a time of stress by a mighty power and an old ally. And so, so here, uh, again, if you really understand the history is the Spanish were not really winning the war against the Cubans. They were, they were not, they were failing and uh, they were happy to have someone from the British Empire and the British Empire was one of the most strongest military dominant power in the world at that time. And so just to get two soldiers was exciting for them. He said, uh, uh, they, they get this guy, one of the Spanish to kind of, they're, they're meeting the, the captain general and they're interpreting who they are and all that. And so, so I think that was, that would have been really interesting. He says, the more we endeavored to reduce the character of our visit, the more its underlying significance was apprised. The captain general was on tour, uh, inspecting various posts and garrisons, but all would be arranged exactly as we wished. We should find the marshal at Santa Clara, and this is the field marshal, this would be the Spanish field marshal at Santa Clara. The journey was quite practicable. The trains were armored. 
Escorts traveled in special wagons at either end and sides of the carriages were protected by strong plating. When firing broke out, as was usual, you only had to lie down on the floor of the carriage to arrive safely. We started the next morning. And so so they wanted a war. <laughs> they were in a war. And uh, I think it's really, really interesting. So so the, the first... The first person they actually meet is, uh, they have to go off now on this train and they have to meet a Marshal Martinez Campos. They got there the next morning. They arrived safely, no risk. They didn't have to jump on the floor. And he, he goes on to say, Marshal Martinez Campos received us affably and handed us over to one of his staff officers, a young lieutenant, son of the Duke of Teuton, by the name of Juan O'Donnell. Now, that really struck me funny. I'm thinking, okay, so there's more history I had to learn about Cuba. And believe it or not, Ireland and Cuba have a history together. Ireland was always a problem for the British Empire, keeping the Irish under control. Well, it's in some ways it's similarity because the Spanish had trouble with the Cubans keeping, you know, keeping them under control. So, so in, in some ways, the way Winston Churchill looked at it is, well, we have our Irish problem, the Spain has our Cuba's problem, it's the same thing. It's like Cuba was the Ireland of the Spanish Empire. <laughs> so, so anyway, but the, the thing that's interesting, you know, be, me being Irish, and I always tell people I'm double Irish because my dad was Irish, my mom was Irish, I do have a little Scottish heritage, and I actually have a sixth great grandmother that was Jewish. So I have a little bit of Jewish in me as well. Sounds like a good Israelite anyway. <laughs> so, so anyway, it, it's, it's interesting that here, Juan O'Donnell now is, is the marshal's, one of his best lieutenants. And, uh, uh, he's, it, Churchill says, Juan, who spoke English extremely well, I was surprised at the name, but was told it had become Spanish since the days of the Irish Brigade. And so if you really look back in history, it was the Ireland. A lot of people from Ireland migrated to Cuba, and they built the, the Cuban railroad system. And, and I just wanted to jump up and cheer because a lot of my relatives came over to western Pennsylvania, and they worked in the railroad, and they worked in the mines. And so, so that's, there's history there. And uh, he said, I was surprised at the name, but was told I had become Spanish since the days of the Irish Brigade. O'Donnell explained that if we wish to see the fighting, we ought to join a mobile column. Such a column, it appeared, had started from Santa Clara only the morning under General Valdez for another little town called Sancti Spiritus. It says about a town about 40 miles away beset by rebels. And he goes on to say, it was a pity we had missed it. We suggested that as it would only have made one march, we could easily overtake it. And he goes on to say, our young Spaniard shook his head and said, you would not get five miles. <laughs> and he's going, and you could, you could see Winston saying, no, wait, we want to go. We want to get there right now. And, and he says, uh, he says, where then are the enemy? We asked. And he said, they are everywhere and nowhere. He replied, Fifty horsemen can get where they please. Two cannot go anywhere. And so he's saying, you'd be dead targets. You know, two of you trying to get it, you get a, you get a lot of men together. They're not going to bother you. Two men, they're going to knock you down. You know, you're going to take you down. And, uh, he, he said, uh, this Juan says, look, 
it's maybe possible for you to intercept General Valdez if you take a train to San Fuegos and then by sea to Nasta. And he says Tuna here, but I think it's Tunasta. It says the railway from Tuna to Santi Spiritus was, he said, strongly guarded by blockhouses and military trains and hitherto passed regularly. So they were going to be better protected from the enemy. And the war is actually really opening and really, really going after it. I mean, they're really going after each other. He goes on to say then, we accomplished our journey with some risk, but no accident. Sancti Spiritus, its name notwithstanding, was a very small place and in the most unhealthy state. Smallpox and yellow fever were rife. We spent the night in a filthy, noisy, crowded tavern, and the next evening General Valdez and his column marched in. And so, so you can see, you can see the British Empire background in Winston. Because Havana, man, they had a great hotel. They ate all the oranges they wanted. They smoked all the cigars they wanted. And now they're in Sancti Spiritus, and it's full of smallpox and yellow fever. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's really crazy. So anyway, Valdez shows up. His, com- his uh, column marches in. They, they got there in just the right time. And, and so, so Winston and Reginald start evaluating the army. What was it going to be like? So, so there was four battalions. They had 3,000 infantry, two squadrons of cavalry, and a mule, mule battery. The troops looked fit and sturdy and none the worse for their marches. They were dressed in cotton uniforms, which may originally have been white, but now with dirt and dust had toned down to something like khaki. So these were not hussars. They were dirty soldiers. And he said they carried heavy packs, double bandoliers. And uh, if you don't know what a bandolier is, it's a pocketed belt for, you know, holding your ammunition. And so they were doubled. So they were, I mean, they had all their ammunition on their on their bodies. It says they carried heavy packs of double bandoliers and they wore large straw Panama hats. Now, that was probably been cool. That would probably be the best part of their whole whole uh, soldier attire. They were warmly greeted by their comrades in the town and also, it seemed, by the inhabitants. So, in other words, the inhabitants were probably passing smallpox. <laughs> smallpox are hugging each other. He goes on to say, Then after a respectful interview, we presented ourselves at the general's headquarters. He had already read the telegrams which commended us to him, and he welcomed us most cordially. Suarez Valdez was a general, general of division. He was making a fourth night's march through the insurgent districts with the double purpose of visiting the townships and posts, garrisoned by the Spaniards and also fighting the rebels wherever and whenever they could be found. He explained through an interpreter that what an honor it was for him to have two distinguished representatives of a great and friendly power attached to his column and how highly he valued the moral support which the gesture of Great Britain implied. So you can see that the Spanish had a positive view of the British Empire at this time. And we know there was other wars with Napoleon and, and uh, uh, well, that was, it would have been actually the French. But uh, they did work together. So uh, uh, he, he says, we said back through the interpreter that it was awfully kind of him and that we're sure that it would be awfully, awfully jolly. <laughs> so how do they transfer that into Spanish? <laughs> so anyway... Uh, it just says here that, that they were accepted and they were really proud to have them. And uh, 
the general even said to them, the town was too full of disease for him to stay for anyone, uh, for any extra unnecessary hour. And he told them, our horses, he, the general told them that their horses would be ready before daylight. In the meantime, he invited us to dinner. So, so that's, that's really interesting. Now, I, I think, I think, uh, for, for Winston Churchill being such a, a soldier guy, he now gets really kind of poetic in the book. He said, Behold, next morning a distant, a distinct sensation in the life of a young officer. It is still dark, but the sky is paling. We are in what a brilliant thought, though little known writer has called the dim, mysterious temple of the dawn. We are on our horses in uniform, our revolvers are loaded in the dusk and half light, long files of armed and laden men are shuffling off towards the enemy. He may be very near. Perhaps he is waiting for us for a mile. We cannot tell. We know nothing of the qualities either of our friends or our foes. We have nothing to do with their quarrels. Except in personal self-defense, we can take no part in their combats. But, listen to this, we feel it is a great moment in our lives. In fact, one of the best uh, we ever have ever experienced. We think that something is going to happen. We hope devotedly that something will happen, yet at the same time, we do not want to be hurt or killed. What is it then that we do want? And he said, it's the lure of youth, adventure, and adventure for adventure's sake. And so, so it's, it's really, really interesting. Now, I'm just going to continue this paragraph because the next one is just hilarious. He says, you might call it tomfoolery to travel thousands of miles with money one could ill afford and get up at four o'clock in the morning in hope of getting into a scrape in the company of perfect strangers is certainly hardly a rational proceeding. Yet we knew there were very few subalterns in the British Army who would not have given a month's pay to sit in our saddles. So that's, that's he's saying, look, we, we can justify this. Then he opens the next paragraph and says, However, nothing happened. <laughs> and so, so you know, they thought they were going to start shooting their guns right away, and, and nothing happened. They thought something would happen. They were hoping something will happen, but however, nothing happened. And so, so they're, they're talking about the, the mysterious temple of the dawn, you know. So I think that's, that's really kind of interesting. All right. One other thing, I think if you know Winston Churchill, you know, he loved his, his uh, drink. And he said, The general's aide-de-camp at length produced a long metal bottle in which he made a beverage which he described as Runcotel. It is only in later years that the meaning of the expression, which I so well remember, has been revealed to me. It undoubtedly meant a rum cocktail. <laughs> so, so before they even go out to shoot, they're drinking rum. So can you imagine what, what that could do to the, the troops? He said, whatever its name, it was extremely good. By this time, hammocks had been slung between the trees of a thicket. I mean, they've already been marching for a while. It says, into the hammocks we were now enjoined to retire. The soldiers' regimental officers extended themselves upon the ground. And it, it, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And guess what it was time for? Siesta. <laughs> so so they, I think they had only gone about 20 miles. And so, so it's, it's, really, it's really quite funny what's going on he says i trust taking the necessary military precautions and everyone slept in the shade for about four hours at two o'clock this estimate was over bustle arose in the silent midday bivouac 
At three in the afternoon, we were once more on the way and marched four hours at a speed, certainly of not less than two and three quarters miles an hour. At dusk, as, as dusk was falling, we were, uh, we reached our camping ground for the night. The column had covered 18 or 19 miles and the infantry did not seem in the least fatigued. Though these tough Spanish peasants, son of the soil, could jog along with heavy loads over mere tracks with an admirable persistence, the prolonged midday halt was like a second night's rest to them. And so, so, uh, uh, if you know, uh, Winston Churchill in his later life, he took siestas all the time and he also drank a lot all day long. And so, so that helped him work. So, so I think it's interesting then, um, as, as he's experiencing this as a soldier, now he, he kind of gets off on the, uh, the, kind of like a treatise on, on taking siestas. <laughs> he says, I have no doubt that the Romans planned the timetable of their days far better than we do. They rose before the sun at all seasons, except in wartime we never see the dawn. Sometimes we see sunset. And this is where he gets poetic. He said, the message of the sunset is sadness. The message of the dawn is hope. And so so uh, he's getting poetic, but he's also talking about, man, there's a real need for people to take siestas. And what's wrong? What's wrong with the English and the Americans? We don't like our siestas. He said, the rest and the spell of sleep in the middle of the day refreshed the human frame far more than at long night. We were not made by nature to work or even to play from 8 o'clock in the morning till midnight. We throw a strain upon our system which is unfair and improvident. For every purpose of business or pleasure, mental or physical, we ought to break our days and our marches into two. And uh, he goes on to say, Following this routine, we marched for several days through a wonderful country without a sign or sound of a sight of war. Meanwhile, we got friendly with our new Spanish hosts and speaking execrable French in common, though from different angles, we managed to acquire some understanding of their views. And then, uh, uh, I hate to tell you, that's all I have time for today. And so, so next time, we will continue with Chapter 6, and uh, we'll get into Chapter 7. And uh, uh, it, it's really, I think, a very, very good book. There's some details that I think we need to really cover for you. And uh, it, it is a unique little book. Now, you can buy My Early Life at Amazon.com. You may also be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. And I think you should be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, uh, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com